You're listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast, where we teach you to stay away from those who say things like this. The first point that we talk to you about being empowered to lead uh, is this, this idea. I want you to know that first, number one, you were born to lead. So you're like, I, I don't see myself as a corporate CEO. I don't see myself as, a, as necessarily an entrepreneur. Some, you do see yourself as that, and you feel like you're trapped in a dead-end role, in a dead-end job. And that you feel that there's more. I, I believe God's going to speak to you and give you visions. He's going to give you dreams about what's next. And then he's going to show you how to gain wisdom as you prepare to move into that. And those who say this. Baptism is intended to be a symbol that symbolizes death into life. It's like a burial followed by a birth. Right. Or this. The Bible says when Jesus held up that bread... On that night with his disciples, he just simply said, this would symbolize my body. As well as those who have never studied Greek, but want you to believe they have. God's plan is for you and I, his people, to live and walk in power. Now this word power is the Greek word dunamis. Dunamis, it's where we get the word dynamite. It's explosive. It's time now to join your hosts. Pastors Devin Kearns and John Bruss, and whoever else they invite as they continue their quest to train you in properly dividing law and gospel and staying away from the sacramentarians. Well, here we are together again in the Pluck Chicken studio, and today is going to be a little bit different. We are going to be opening the mailbag. We have been sent numerous questions that need answering. I did think about organizing them kind of together, but that's way too much work. So I thought we'd just take them one by one. But before we begin to answer these questions, Pastor Bruss, we've got somebody sitting at the table here who's never been here before. We do. We brought in a real expert, uh, a colleague of ours here in town, uh, Pastor Ben Mykeel, who is the pastor of Christ Lutheran Church. So welcome, Pastor Mykeel. We're glad to have you here. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Tell us a, a little bit about how long you've been here in uh, Topeka and um, and where you've come from. I've been here in Topeka just under a year. I, uh, I was uh, called to Christ Lutheran Church and uh, was installed last July. And uh, prior to that, I was in, uh, in Kentucky at a, at a small church in LaGrange, which was right outside Louisville. And uh, prior to that, I spent a little time in North Carolina right out of the seminary. We are happy to have you here with us. And uh, we decided to invite Pastor Michael on this uh, journey into numerous questions that Pastor Kearns has, has gotten. And actually, I, I think I want to m- just mention something. We do readily invite questions. We would love to be able to, as it were, correspond on the air with those who listen to the Pluck Chicken podcast. And so this is a very welcome opportunity for us. Absolutely. So th- let's get right at it. How would a Lutheran explain how salvation is obtained? Well, I think the the helpful thing at this point would be to to look at different sort of contrasting models. Um, And without being kind of overly cheeky, and I I don't want people to take this uh, in a a disrespectful way, uh, the first contrast that can easily be drawn is between the teachings of the Evangelical Lutheran Church and Scripture on the one hand, and the Roman Catholic Church on the other. So I'll start with the Roman Catholic uh, idea. In Roman Catholicism, salvation, uh, 
at least according to the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification, which was signed with some accommodating Lutherans back in Germany in, um, in the later part of the 20th century, they believe in justification by faith, by grace, um, all of those sorts of things that we would say. Here's the difference. They don't add the word alone, by grace alone, by faith alone. And so uh, in the Roman Catholic idea, there's this sense that uh, grace is infused, it's poured into you. They call it gratia infusa, grace poured in. And this this grace, if you want to, when I try to teach this to catechumens, I, I draw a picture of a little man, right? And it's like he's got a lid on his head. And what God does through the sacraments is that he, he pours grace into you and you fill up with grace. Well, when you sin, you spring a leak. And so you need to return to the sacraments. When you actually capitalize on the grace that God has given to you by doing good works, you can kind of replenish your reservoir or actually add to it. Now, here's the fascinating thing about Roman Catholicism. When a person is canonized, it is the Roman Catholic way of saying, we are certain this person has achieved salvation. So how many people have been canonized in the Roman Catholic Church? It's a fraction of the total Roman Catholics. Everybody else is going to purgatory, and they've got to really spend their time in purgatory to augment the amount of grace that they've got inside of themselves by plugging up the leaks of sin. Well, and on top of that, there is a litmus test to determine canonicity for said individual. Oh, correct. This is why it takes like years for someone to be canonized because they're, they have to meet all the requirements. Correct. And, and, and since they are in heaven, there's also the sense that they've got a superfluity of grace and it extends out of themselves. And so you can pray to the saints because they've got the superfluity of grace. Now, I, I only brought that up, not, not to go down a rabbit hole, but to talk about Uh, how Lutheranism distinguishes itself. And I actually think this is going to become very helpful for us in a moment when we turn to like evangelicalism. Salvation in Lutheranism is by God's grace alone through faith alone, which itself is a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace have you been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. I, I really suppose that what you're here is wondering about is how does this get to us? How does this grace get to us? Well, that's very simple. God invests his word and sacraments with the grace that works faith in the heart of the sinner. And so It's the exposure to word and sacrament that gives faith and therefore keeps one in the faith. But there is no holiness of life that is added to that salvation. We would say that holiness of life or a lack of holiness of life might be an indication that you're going off the rails. And again, the the law would come in and curb that and, and preach against it and drive you to Christ. So it's really in Christ alone through his grace and the faith that he gives that we are saved. So not just holy life, but also good works are not attached to that either. That is absolutely correct. Holy, and I'm taking, I would take holy life and good works as, you know, synonymous basically. Yep. 
No, let's contrast that with evangelicaldom. I think that they would agree with our premises, that it's by grace alone through faith alone. Sure. Right? They would absolutely say that. But then there's with this— With an asterisk at the end. Well, and why the asterisk? Because it is dependent upon, uh, as you said, holy life. Right. It's like the rest of your life is a proving ground for it. And so the radical nature of, of the scriptural teaching is these alone statements. Luther was knocked upside the head by the Roman Catholics for inserting these what he called exclusive particles in, in statements like in Romans chapter 3 and, and elsewhere, where it's faith alone, where he would say faith alone. Well, the text says faith apart from works. He was simply explicating what faith apart from works means. So when it comes right down to it of how a Lutheran would explain how salvation is obtained, we would say through the solas. Yes, yes, obtained. And can we back up just a little bit? And I don't want to get overly... This is not divorced from Jesus and his work either, is it? In, in any sense whatsoever. Jesus, in fact... So, so Jesus lays down the work for our salvation. He, he lives the holy life that, that we could not live. He, is, he pays infinitely the price owed for our sin through his holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death on, on the cross. And then he takes all of that and he packs it up into his word and sacraments as the delivery mechanism to bring it to sinful human beings. And we can, we can just go down the, the scriptures, uh, sacrament of the altar. This is my body. This is my blood for you, for the forgiveness of sins. Ha, there you go. Where there's forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. How about baptism? He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Baptism actually works the faith that it demands, which is a beautiful thing. Uh, and we learn this from Titus chapter 3, that, that uh, baptism is a washing of regeneration and a renewal of the Holy Spirit. Huge. And then think about this. Uh, Jesus' promise to the 72, which is pertinent to every single pastor whom Christ has called, he who hears you hears me. To hear the voice of your pastor is to hear the very voice of Jesus. And what does he say to sinners? He says, I have died for all of your sins. I've put them away as far as the east is from the west. So what you're talking about here is the difference between how salvation was won versus how salvation is then distributed. Correct. And there's a difference, but they're, they're always connected. If you, if you separate the connection, faith as an attitude doesn't save. Being treated graciously as a kind of on the receiving end of what human treatment or something like that doesn't save. It's always in Christ. So that brings us to really, a, I believe, a follow-up to that question. The questioner asks, what, if any, is the chronological framework? Now, let me give you uh, kind of a context. And Lutherans don't, they don't think this way. I believe this is coming from a Reformed thinking. There, Reformed are real big on ordos. Like, what is the order of salvation? The ordo salutis. Yep. Exactly. The order of salvation in which someone comes from, well, death to life. If you were to go online and look for ordo salutis, Nobody's list is the same. Right. You know, we, we and we've got all kinds of 
of little steps. You know, some are, are more simplistic, others my goodness, you would think you're, you're becoming a mason. I mean, there's like 32 <laughs> steps, right? And so this is where I think that this is going. You know, what, what, if any, is the chronological framework for salvation? And I think it's easy to say, well, we know where we start. We start dead in our sins and our trespasses. But here's, here's what the Lutherans believe that is different from, obviously, those in the Reformed camp. We make it very, very clear. I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. So some ordos, you know, put the decision upon the person because he has free will. And so in regard to spiritual things, dead is dead. Yeah, you've got a free will to wear pajama bottoms to Walmart or not, but not when it comes to accepting Jesus. Yeah. So what would you say about that, Pastor Michael, about an ordo salutis, uh, an order of salvation? Going with uh, with what Pastor Kearns was saying, I mean, just that the, the idea of that is is somewhat uh, somewhat foreign in the uh, in the Lutheran world. I mean, that's not that's certainly not the way that uh, that we would really run that through. But but yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree in that, you know, we, we are we are dead. Dead is dead. There's there's no there's no two ways about that, and we are dead in, in our sins and our trespasses. But that faith comes to us. We are called by the gospel. You know, we're 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 enlightened by by the gifts of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Um, so, you know, if you had to put an order on it, it would be you're dead. God brings you to life, and then uh, when when uh, when God calls you to, to to heaven or 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 to the new creation, that is when you see the the completion, the fulfillment of that new life that God has called you to. Yeah, and that, you know, that that's interesting that you put it that simply, and it really is just that simple, isn't mm-hmm. it? As a matter of fact, people experience that simple thing in many, many different ways. So, it, like, Pastor Michael, how many children do you have? I have four. You have four children. When were they baptized? All within a month of being born. So all within a month of being born. So they're infants. They were baptized as infants. Could they recite the Apostles' Creed? Nope. No. Um, did they answer the questions about renouncing the devil and all his works and all of his ways? No, they, they, they pretty much all cried through that part. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. right. And yet, you, you so, so even here at this kind of almost... I don't even know what we'd call infant consciousness. I mean, there's consciousness clearly, but it's infantile consciousness. Even at this stage, God the Holy Spirit is at work on on those kids. No. And, and so when they were baptized, the promise of the scriptures that God gives the Holy Spirit through baptism, was that any less true for your infant children than for an adult? Well, and, and that's the thing is that it's all God at work, so it's no less true because it's it's God working. It's not us doing any any part of it. And that and this entirely according to His Word, right? Right. This right. is totally word dependent. Absolutely. Yeah, it is word driven. He's called me by the gospel, as Pastor Michael just said. It's the word attached to the water. Totally true. And I didn't want to. I I wasn't trying to say that. Yeah, I, I was not. But it is the word in the water that's doing the job, 
Um, and the point, the point that I was trying to make simply, and, and your point is totally on the mark, is that, is that God promises in the scripture that he pours out the Holy Spirit in baptism. We may not see the evidence of that. All we see is water getting poured over the head. Right. Right. And the baby doesn't like suddenly sit up and say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. But we don't rely on the veracity of our senses or our sensory experience. We rely on the validity of the word of God who made heaven and earth by his word. Well, and on top of that, we don't see the demon leaving the child when we say, depart, you unclean spirit, and make room for the Holy Spirit. We don't see that. We don't see the angels rejoicing. The Bible says this is exactly what happens because we don't rely upon these visual images or these cues. We, we understand what the Scripture is saying, and that's where we leave it. Right. So many people miss out on all those amazing things that are happening in the baptism liturgy. I mean, the, the exorcism that is actually happening to that, to that person who's being baptized and it, it it is just it's just wonderful when you read through it and 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 understand the you know the, the the things of God that are happening in that time and place. It's it's amazing. And the demons flee at the name of Jesus, and that's that's why that's why the exorcism is efficacious. It's, well, sure, it's not because the pastor's making the sign of the cross or no, or right. saying mumbo jumbo. It's, but this is where the strong man is being bound at this point. Right. Okay. So that's that's the experience of a baby. And, and this is how I was brought to the faith. This is how Pastor Michael was brought to the faith. You uh, were raised as a Baptist, and right. so your experience is a little bit different. Yeah. You had been taught the faith faithfully by your mom and dad and pastor and so on and got baptized at age seven. Okay, seven it was. And then you've got a whole slew of people, even in the scriptures, who are full-grown adults who are not baptized until adulthood. Well, what's happened there? Well, first they've heard the word, and the word has actually brought them to to faith. But they don't deny their baptism. They don't run away from it. They they get baptized because the preaching of the gospel is that God gives the Holy Spirit in baptism. So why would I want to be baptized? Well, because God tells me he gives the Holy Spirit in baptism. Why do I want to receive the sacrament of the altar? My sins have already been forgiven by the death of Jesus because Jesus said, for you, for the forgiveness of sins. That is just so wild. I mean, most ordos, they don't include in their progression. Yeah, they all start dead in your sins and your trespasses. But none of them talk about baptism. None of them talk about what you just said regarding the sacrament of the altar. None of them. That's interesting. Even though the means of grace bring you what? The forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. They're delivered to you yeah. through these means. And this, let's go back to the original question that you read on this whole business of the Ordo and what you, what you just said, which is so critically important. The thing that separates God from us or us from God is very simple. It's not our death. It's not being in a different ontological order. He's God, exists all the time. We're human beings. We come into and go out of existence. None of that. We're cre creatures. He's creator. What separates us from God is our sin. And when God takes it away, then you know, as you just said, 
Where there is forgiveness of sins, there is life and salvation. Every it's it's like the the shield that had kept a, kept heaven and eternal life and life and um, joy. I mean everything. The the cap has been removed and the 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 vessel is being filled with all of those things. So when are you saved? When your sins are forgiven. It's that easy. That, I mean, that is not going to write a book. That's not, that's not going to do it. You you got to be more elaborate than that. Well, we need Pastor Oakry in here yeah, to, to give us more. What does he say? Fluff. You yeah, can fluff exactly. up fluff up a paper. <laughs> can I can I add another thing? I'm sorry. Okay. Um, well, yeah, we need another chapter in this book. Well, you can't. You, well, here we go. You've only given us one chapter. It's it's not that simple. I mean, it, it it is that simple, but it's not that simple. So then the Christian life begins. And the Christian life is one lived between God's two opposing words constantly, uh, his law and his gospel. And to live in that baptismal life, in the life of one who has sins are forgiven, who has life and salvation, is to recognize that one is still a sinner, even though he's already a saint. And so you're you're constantly going, I, I, I often talk about it like a, like a wash machine. You're just going around and around and around and around. Sometimes the water jet is spraying on you and other times you're getting dry on the edge. And when you're getting dry on the edge, let's call that the law. When you're getting the water jet on you, that's the gospel. And so the rhythm of the Christian life is constantly moving in and out of these two words of God, trusting that the one word of God, his gospel, is God's last word it is just a completely different way of thinking that i find to be absolutely freeing you know you look at some of these ordos and you're like well where where am i where what i mean i'm not kidding you know vivification regeneration i mean a lot of these words are synonymous with each other they're all the same thing but if you, if you find some verse where Paul talks about vivification over here and he talks about regeneration over here and he talks about something else over here, you string them all together and now, guess what? You've got Catholicism all over again. You've got this ladder that you got to climb. There we go. Now, that's, that's why I brought up the Catholicism. Right. And that's, I mean, that's the thing is, is uh, when, you, when you go through all those ordos, through all those things that you, the, the hoops that you have to jump through, where are your eyes focused? They're not focused on Jesus anymore. They're not focused on the cross. They're not focused on the empty tomb. They're focused on what do I have to do to keep or make God happy with me instead of what has Jesus already accomplished. So it's a very simple ordo is what you're saying. In a way, it's simple if you were to diagram it out, but yet it is through living this life in the valley of tears. I mean, that's what makes it complicated because we have the, the world, the flesh, and the devil to contend with. Right. And what God God uses even those to drive us back to Himself, and um, and so it's always running, as Pastor Michael just said, it's always running to Jesus, not back the other way out the door for more good works. And th- th- what a blessing that is. Amen. All right. So here's another question, and it's kind of in the same vein, but yet in a way it's not. It deals with the doctrine of election. How do Lutherans differ from Calvinism? So Calvinists teach it what they call a double predestination. But the, the more important thing to, 
to point out with Calvinism is where theology begins. Calvinist theology begins with the transcendent, sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. Now, Lutheranism doesn't deny a transcendent, sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. But Lutheran, Lutheranism always finds God where God has indicated he wants to be found. Where does he want to be found? He wants to be found in Mary's arms, both at at his birth and you know in, in his being taken down from the Holy Cross. He wants to be found in the tomb. He wants to be found on the cross. He wants to be found on the shores of the of the Sea of Galilee. You know, all these things. He and he wants to be found in his word and sacrament. Now, this God proclaims. Lutheranism sometimes talks about this God and that God, referring to the one and the same God. It's because people focalize that God in different ways. So when I say this God in Jesus, I'm not saying that it's a different God from the triune God. I'm just saying the God focalized in this way comes to us with nothing but grace and mercy and the forgiveness of sins. This is how God wants to be known. So Lutheranism begins there, not with the sovereignty of God. Now, does God send his son into the world oh and say things like hmm like for god so loved the world that he gave his the the what the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life and kind of give that with his right hand but take it back with his left hand the answer is absolutely not he loved the world and he gave them he gave his son for the entire world First Timothy 2 says, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He's not giving with one hand and taking back with the other. This is his sincere desire for all people. We find that in the enfleshed God, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and in his word and sacrament. That's where we begin. If you begin at the top with a sovereign God, there are lots of questions you don't know about that God. Well, and as Luther would say, that's like peeping in on the naked God. Right. And you don't, you don't want to do you that. You don't do that. You don't want to do that. All you're left with is your speculations. Right. And so what you do is you observe human life, and you say, Tom is obviously a good Christian. He must be going to heaven. But Mike, oh boy, he is a drug addict, and um, you know he's sworn off. Uh, he, you know, he doesn't ever come to church. He must be going to hell. That must be God's will. This is the deduction that the Calvinists sure. make. But, but then on top of that, you've got others who make the deduction. But who's this guy over here who's sworn off church? Well, Mike, 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 yeah, Mike. Mike accepted Jesus when he was six years old at vacation Bible school. Even though he's lived fifty years of total debauchery, did. He, he accept Jesus and once saved, always saved. That's that's how they would articulate it. So he must have not been saved in the first place is what they would say, right? When he accepted Jesus, that was insincere. No, they're saying that was sincere. That was sincere. So so he accepted Jesus so he can live however he wants. Right. Okay. okay I, I mean, this is another yeah. way to deal mm -hmm. with this problem, but I think what you're talking about is you're, you're dealing from it by using human experience and human logic and reasoning rather than letting the scriptures 
argue it for themselves. Right. You know, Pastor Michael, how would you talk about the distinction between Lutheranism and double predestination? Well, and I was I was thinking just just for a second to go back. I was thinking when uh, when you were talking about you know he he accepted Jesus at at six years old at VBS and then lived his life however, but that was sincere, so it's it's okay. It's I mean that's that's exactly what what Bonhoeffer talks about when he talks about cheap grace is you know you can just just go and do whatever you want, have, you know, party it up, live your life, and just know that you know God loves you and it's okay, and and that that's not really what we're called to be as God's people. But this, you know, back to the the double predestination idea. I mean, it again, it takes it takes away it takes away from the work of Christ and it also puts significant doubt in your mind. I mean, how do I know that I'm good enough? You know, how do I know that God has predestined me to go to heaven and not predestined me to go to hell? I mean, it's just there's so much doubt in your mind and that's I mean, that's not what that's not what God gives us in Scripture. God, God's very clear in Scripture of faith in Christ. That's that's what is going to going to lead to eternal life, not just some arbitrary choice by some uh, some Creator God who's completely you know hands off of of the entire creation. Good. And the doctrine of predestination is given to Christians, not to the world. Right. Right. And this is so important. So it's, it's given to us as comfort that when we doubt, for example, you know, I just had a heck of a day yesterday. I, you know, I sinned in more ways than I can, than I can count. And some of it was horrifying sin. And God certainly couldn't love me still. Is he serious about saving me? And the answer is, are you baptized? Do you have his word preached to you? Do you receive the sacrament of the altar? If the answer is yes, and guess what? God wants me to be saved. This is, again, something that is so fascinating because those in the Reformed camp sit around all day long talking about election. And as you said, you know, they're viewing it from, from, from the top down instead of from the, the bottom up, so to speak. What I found is that Lutherans rarely talk about election. I mean, they don't, they don't sit around and uh, pontificate on who's saved and who's not saved. I'll give you this one example. Uh, I was counseling with a couple, and she's Lutheran and he's not. But he comes from a very devout Christian family. His dad's a pastor. And uh, I just said, I was telling them that if they continue in this relationship... This has got to be resolved. This is not one of these things where we can go to this church this week and go to this church that week and blah, blah, blah. And this, this guy was, you know, he's thinking everybody's just born again. We're just born again, right? That's all that matters. And I said, well, how do you know that you're saved? I mean, in a way, how do you know you're elected? How, how do you know that you're saved? And he goes on and on. You know, he starts with, well, I live a pretty good life. I'm a good person. I was raised in the church. I mean, all of these things. I believe in Jesus. I accepted him in my heart. I mean, all these things. I look at her. How do you know you're saved? She said, I was baptized. And I look at him and I go, you see the difference? Mm -hmm. And that, that's a beautiful illustration of that. It communicates the fact that God wants to give you assurance. He doesn't want you to say, does he love me? Does he love me not? Right. Does he love me? Right. Does he love me <laughs> yeah. not? As you're picking petals off the flower. And listen, listen to the language that's used there. 
the the husband says, well, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. The wife says, this was done to me. Right, right, right. right. Yep. So it's comfort to the Christian. Uh, It's comfort to the troubled conscience. And can I just add one last thing? God does condemn. There's no question about it. Uh, On the last day, uh, the the goats are going to be told, depart from me, you accursed. Um, So there's no, you know, we don't want to, but it's not that salvation that. was not won for them. Correct. It was won for them. It's not that it wasn't brought to them. They just, they simply reject, they rejected it. So when we talk about predestination, who is responsible for salvation? God and God alone. Who is responsible for condemnation? Man and man alone. And uh, that's really hard to hard to wrap your head around because what you want to do is create a matrix where the responsibility is all God's or all man's, but that doesn't map over the scriptural data. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And why are the sheep accursed? Uh, it's because they uh, rejected the the work of, of Jesus and focused on their own works. Of course. Well, this is exactly what the scriptures say. Lord, Lord, did we not do this? Did we not do this in your name? Depart from me. I never knew you. Right. All right, ready for another one? Faith is a gift from God given by the hearer of God's word. How then does a person confess to believe with the faith given without an act of will? So so Lutherans do talk about conversion. It's not like we're rocks that move only when you swing the sledgehammer one way and then move in the other direction when you swing the sledgehammer the other way. The will is actually converted. And so what God does uh, in conversion is he throws, Luther uses this wonderful analogy in the bondage of the will. He throws the rider off the horse, which is Satan. And he's steering the horse where it doesn't want, you know, where, well, I I shouldn't even say where it doesn't want to go. It's It's just at Satan's behest. And so he throws that rider off and mounts the steed himself and steers it in the direction it it ought to go. Um, The will does get turned. And so a will, by definition, wills. So when one makes the confession, I believe in Jesus Christ. Which cannot be confessed without the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit or without faith. The will has been converted. And I willingly, earlier... I, I willingly said to hell with that. After my conversion, I willingly say yea and amen. But it's God's work. Just like Lazarus coming out of the tomb. He Good. Was, he yeah. was told to come out. His will automatically comes out. I, I don't want to be wrapped up in these these garments anymore, this loincloth. And I don't want to be in this dank tomb. I'm coming out. Right. Good. That's a great, that's a wonderful analogy. Yeah, but somebody might say, well, that wasn't salvation, though. That yeah. had nothing to do with <laughs> salvation. Following up with that, then, how does one then reject the faith after hearing the preaching of the word without it also being an act of will? And I think you've just answered that. It is an act of will. It, right. Because their, their will is set against God. Correct. And what he's getting at here, I think, is is what the the confessions call the crooks 
Theologorum, the cross on which the theologians crucify themselves. So human responsibility for rejection of the gospel, but divine responsibility for the conversion of the will, you either end up saying God's responsible for both or the human's responsible for both, but the scriptural witness says otherwise. <laughs> and that one is, uh, I mean, even with uh, you know, lifelong Lutherans, that's one that people just have a difficult time wrapping their mind around, mind around is, you know, God is 100% responsible for my salvation, but if I'm not saved, it's 100% my fault. Um, and it's people just, and I mean, it's when you really sit down and think about it, it is kind of a mind bender. It's, it's hard to really fully wrap your brain around it. Well, it's a paradox and both of those have to be held in tension. Right. Because again, going back to something we said earlier, it's totally word dependent. This is not me making sense of the biblical data into my pea brain Aristotelian logic. It is God's sense. Can I just add one last thing? This becomes oftentimes a very deeply personal and scary thing uh, for Christians to be faced with. Why has my daughter walked away from the faith? Why does my aunt, my mom and dad came to faith later in life, why did my aunt not? And why is she, I love her dearly and I teach her the gospel, but she rejects it and rejects it and rejects it. Who's at fault? Why did God work on mom and dad, but not on Auntie May? You want to know what the answer to the question is? You don't know the answer to we the question. We don't know the answer right. to the question. And that's a hard answer to give. It is. And it's a hard answer to hear. But we're not going to pull the Calvinist view and say that God created Auntie May for destruction. Right. He said, I, I need another f faggot in hell. Right. right. Yep. Yeah. Because that fire is going to burn out. A lot of these questions seem to go around a, a theme, don't they? And you just pointed that out off air. Um, and there is really helpful reading in our Lutheran confessions uh, in the Formula of Concord, Articles 2 and 11. Article 2 deals with free will, and Article 11 deals with God's election or predestination. And I would encourage our listener to read that. I do have to say that when I started reading the Book of Concord and uh, I got into it and just thought, where has this been my whole life? <laughs> you know, because I was used to, again, as I said earlier, the complex ordos, the, the, the volumes uh, of, uh, of material regarding election. I mean, it gets so complicated. Uh, and I'm not trying to sound evangelical here, but it gets so complicated when you take your eyes off Jesus. Yes, absolutely. So this one then is in a similar vein. Where is the division at which an individual is responsible to receive slash react? So, <laughs> so the Lutheran pastors sitting around the table are looking at one another with furrowed brow. <laughs> because we're thinking birth, right? We're, we're thinking, what is, what is, we, we don't even get the question. Yeah, that's, right. that's a very, right. a very foreign idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, But it's worth talking about maybe a little bit. And, and it probably goes back to the whole, as you were saying earlier, Pastor Kearns, the Ordo Salutis business, 
where things have to be on a timeline and maybe even observably on a timeline. So I cross, you know, it's, it's like a, the, the 100 yard hurdles or something. I'm over the first one. Now I got to get over the second one, third one, fourth one. We don't pontificate about what we can't see and about what God doesn't reveal. And that's really what it comes down to. Would, would you say, Pastor Mike Heal? Right. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's one of those, a very, very simple way to say it that uh, I, I recall distinctly hearing a few times at the seminary was, God is God and you're not. <laughs> good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, good. And Pastor Kearns, you, you had a great uh, analogy or a little insertion there that was very helpful. Well, if there is a, a division, I don't know about a division, but uh, when is the individual responsible to receive? Well, God's the one who's willing to give the, the, the gifts as soon as somebody's born. He's not waiting for someone to make a decision. He's not waiting for somebody with downs to get healed. He's like, I am ready to give the gifts as soon as the child comes out of the womb. Oh, I see. I see how this thing works. So this is actually like at what stage in life in, in human development is how you're reading it. And I was reading it more like, okay, God does a certain amount of work and then now it's on you and you got to carry the carry the bucket the rest of the way. I'm, and that might be the case. I mean, I don't I don't have explanations for these questions, so we're just trying to we're trying to parse out. Now maybe maybe this follow-up will help. But cuz he uses the same words. Okay. But go ahead. Well, I I think your your point was really awesome that when does God want to save you? It, it's in his eternal counsel actually. Sure. So you could say always. Right. But there, there is no kind of level of maturity. That's point number one. When you said birth, I thought, I thought what you were saying is that God is the one who gives the, the new birth. Which he does. He does. He, in baptism, when you're brought to faith. And there the will is converted. And the will now wills God. It fights with itself because the sinner is still in there, but it, it, it wills God. And, and there is a modicum of responsibility at that point in time. The person who desires God is drawn to God and goes to the things of God, namely his word and sacraments. It's interesting. I'm reminded of a conversation that Chris Rosebro had with Rod Rosenblatt. And Chris Rosebro, coming from a non-Lutheran, non-liturgical understanding, he is so upset with Rosenblatt, because he just can't get over how gracious and good and merciful God is to sinners, like himself. So what he says was, and Pastor Mike Eel, it goes back to something you said. He said something like, if that's the case, this is Rosebro to Rosenblatt, if that's the case, then I can go and do whatever I want. And Rosenblatt said to Rosebro, what do you want to do? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Right? If your will has been converted, right. there is what you just said, a desire for godly things. Not that we still don't wrestle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, but there is a desire in us to pray and read our Bible and come to church and receive the sacrament and hear the absolution. There, It's there because God is the one who has brought it to life. Yeah, that's good. I love that. That response is excellent. What would you want to do? Yeah. 
Well, and it, you know, he was stupefied. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, I don't want to go get completely wasted. I've, I've done, I've done that many of time, and I, I don't want to do that anymore. That's still not a life honoring to God. I mean, you, you automatically think of all the negative things, and then you think through those, and you're like, well, I don't want to do those things. And you're like, yeah, because you're saved, right? And to pick up Pastor Michael's talk about cheap grace. A little bit earlier that that position of being saved is a position of always being drawn to Jesus so so it's not it's not you know I got baptized when I was a, a little munchkin and now I can do I don't have to go to church well, what what living faith would ever say such a thing right the next question here I'm noticing uh, it may be a follow-up on that one because the the words are used again is receiving or rejecting belief construed as attribution to human will and cooperation and therefore undermining the absolute supremacy of God's grace, then how does that work? So the answer is no. Then how does that work? <laughs> well, this goes back to our, our earlier discussion that, that the human being is solely responsible for his condemnation and God is solely responsible for his salvation. Right. And that's, I mean, that's, that's the way God kind of set it up, I guess. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's not going to take away from the things of God because that's the way God desires for it to be. And there is a conversion of the will. And that's, that's what he's got to bear in mind. There is a conversion of the will, but the will doesn't convert itself. It's impossible for the will to convert itself. So now... God has to throw the rider off. Right. And the will now has a new want to. Right. And I believe the old timers called that unction. Which old timers? King James peeps. Oh, I see. Oh, okay. okay. (laughs) I did not know. (laughs) I was trying to figure out who you were talking about. All right. So in the same vein here, how can an individual who was baptized as an infant and therefore died with Christ and raised to new life, then as an adult, reject or kill their own faith and therefore be removed from the book of life? It's the same answer again. And, and there are examples. You know, this is posed as if it's a mystery or um, like the zinger. Here's my zinger. If it really worked this way, then nobody would walk away from their faith. Well, let's just walk through the biblical examples. And that is God's desire that no one walks away from their faith. Right, but they can. Right. And it's not like the Bible doesn't know about it. So let's just start with... How about Cain? How about about Adam and Eve? (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, they they lived in perfection and yet walked away from salvation. Talk about uh, Alexander and Hymenaeus uh, in the in the pastoral epistles. Saul had everything. He was circumcised. The spirit of God was given to Saul, and he said, "Mech, Demas. He was a lover of the world." Yeah. What? Who else? I mean, let's, well, you, th- Judas. Well, sure. Right. Yeah, that's kind of a big one there. Well, John uh, speaks in First John about those who were of us. And have what? Left us. Yeah, right. they've gone out into the world, haven't they? Yeah, and so when he said, when he uses that terminology, it doesn't mean just like they were in our club. <laughs> right, right. right. They were us. Okay, uh, let's just go on here. King David. And no one, no one wants to deal with this one. 
But King David, the, and I think the confessions are right, uh, when he committed adultery, then lied, then covered it up with the, with the murder of Uriah. And then um, sat on that. Okay, what did David do? He said, God certainly doesn't matter, and I matter most. He's told me not to commit adultery, but I'm going to commit adultery, even though I could go into my harem and screw one of 600 women. Well, you had five wives. Right. Yeah, oh, you're thinking Solomon. Solomon. Okay, let's yeah. back up. Even, <laughs> even though I could go to one of my five but, wives. But, but I would say this. Uh, you know, when you have women that live together, they all get on the same cycle. So they might have all been on. I mean. Well, well he, I mean. You he, gotta, and you're right. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I'm not justifying it. So he was. And, and I mean, you've got to figure Bathsheba was probably quite the eye catcher. Well, you oh, also got to sure. figure that she knew she was, you know, it takes two to tango here. She knew yeah. where, what she was doing, too. Okay, start over. I, <laughs> okay, I'm serious. So, well, I, so David lived as if he mattered most and as if God didn't matter at all. And it, the, the kind of drubbing out of his mind, the law of God, it is almost unfathomable that you could consciously go and commit adultery, that you could consciously then try to deceive the husband, that you could consciously then try to deceive your own people, that you could consciously then have this guy murdered and cover it up in a cloak of, he's, he's a great fighter, so we're going to put him where the fighting's hot. I mean, this is, this is unbelievable. David has left the faith. The question then is, would he therefore be removed from the book of life? He was removed from the book of life. And God sent his prophet to say, you have removed yourself from the book of life. And praise God that through that proclamation of the law, David was brought to repentance and to a real living hope again in the God who saves. Psalm 51. He doesn't say, I'm going to purge myself with hyssop. He commands God to. Right. It's that outward language again, not the inward language. Right. Yes. Right. Very similar here. When does regeneration slash conversion happen for the adult who was not baptized as an infant but has heard the word proclaimed, repented, and has contrition? Is it at baptism or before? It's, be, it's yeah, if before. If they've heard the word and repented and have a contrite heart, it's, it's already happened. Because that doesn't happen without the Holy Spirit. Right. That, but that's the law part of the conversion, right? Right. 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 Yes. The gospel part of the conversion would be the, uh, you know, uh, you're crushing your sin and then God right. sends the message, wow, <laughs> I sent my son into the world right. for you. Right. Yeah. That wonderful absolution. But what's he getting at? I, and I think what he's getting at is then why is baptism necessary? Exactly. That yeah. is what's running through yeah. my mind here. So, and we're guessing here. We don't, you know. Correct. We, we don't know. No Lutheran would ever say, and, and the scriptural examples don't even suggest this, that there's not real faith until baptism. The only reason that the Ethiopian eunuch asks for baptism is because of what? He's got faith in the God who saves through baptism. And they just happen upon some water. Right, right. <laughs> As if God hadn't planned that out. Right, right, yeah, exactly. But aren't you suggesting that one receives the Holy Spirit apart from baptism when Peter clearly says in his sermon that the Holy Spirit is given to you at your baptism? Uh, you're, I, I'm assuming you're adopting the 
voice of an interlocutor who's objecting to the argument here for the sake of it. Basically, you, you as an interlocutor, a fake interlocutor, have played the, the silly game of the Calvinists, which is to say, since, since you say God gives the Holy Spirit in baptism and saves by that means, then you can't say that God also gives the Holy Spirit through his word and saves by that means. And that's stupid. That'd be like saying, I get my oil changed at Quick Lube, but I'm going to take it to Padron's today to get an oil change. Well, you can't do that because you get your oil change at Quick Lube. Well, no, I can, I can get an oil change at Padron's. That's putting a limit on God, saying, saying God can't do something. Which he actually does do. Right. Right. Because God's words are spirit and life. All right, here's a question. Can I believe that Christ's true body and blood are present in the Holy Supper and not be Lutheran? And therefore, when receiving communion at a Reformed church, still partake of the gifts? Now, I do have to say, in my evangelical church, which, you know, non-denominational means Baptist, but in that church... We had some folks who were raised Lutheran, and they had left many, many moons ago. I didn't really understand all of this until later, but I remember us talking about the sacrament of the altar and me saying, how are you who are catechized correctly able to sit here and listen to me say, this represents Christ's body, this represents Christ's blood? How are you able to to partake of this? And her answer was, I always knew what was true. That even though I was saying one thing, she believed another. I, I think there are a lot of Lutherans who think that way. When they go to an evangelical church. Sure, that they, that they can just go ahead and receive the sacrament because, you know, even though these putzes don't know what is going on, I, I do. Can I correct his language? Um, a Lutheran would never use the language that he does to describe the real presence. He says Christ's body and blood are present in the Lord's Supper. Calvinists talk that way, and Lutherans reject that kind of mystical presence. The Lutheran teaching is the bread is Christ's body, the wine is Christ's blood, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The bread which we break, is, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The cup that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? So, I mean, this is really important to really clarify for him what the real presence is, is that the bread is his body and the wine is his blood. But if he goes to a church where they don't believe that... So Lutherans have broken their head over this one. And there are two Orthodox two answers I've heard from the Orthodox. One is that... It might be his real body and blood if the words of institution were used, being used totally wrongly and for one's judgment, or uh, that the intention of the, of the confession of that altar is never for it to be the body and blood of Christ, therefore it is not the body and blood of Christ. I don't know where I come down on that one. I, I find this one very puzzling. Minimally, what I would say is that he is sinning in receiving the sacrament of the altar, even if it really is the body and blood of Christ. He is sinning in receiving the sacrament of the altar at a heterodox altar. And there's something to be said along with 
along the lines of, of what we believe and, and why we believe it. I mean, if you're communing with the other people in that church, I mean, that's, that's kind of a powerful statement of saying we are, we are one in faith. We agree with each other, you know, across the board. I mean, that's why uh, in the LCMS we are very careful about who comes to our altar and who does receive body and blood because it's a, it's a bold statement of faith uh, while you're up there. Absolutely. And to Pastor Michael's point, what is that? Many grapes, one bottle of wine, many grains, one loaf of bread, right? There, there really is a, a united confession. It's not some believe and some don't believe. It, all that matters is what you believe. Functionally, we operate that way. The only safeguard we have is the public confession of the person. So, you know, why would we not commune somebody's Methodist aunt who's here for their confirmation and, and won't be the next week. Well, because her actual actions confess that she believes what the Methodists believe and not what the Lutherans believe. Because if, if she did confess what the Lutherans believe, when she went back home, she would join St. Athanasius Lutheran Church and not First United Methodist. So that's one thing. Second command, this is a second commandment issue at a minimum. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. To teach falsehood in God's name and to tolerate falsehood proclaimed in God's name is to break the second commandment. So as he is receiving all of this false teaching, participating in kind of every way possible in the communion of a confession that differs from his what he recognizes to be the truth of Scripture, he is sinning against the second commandment. So he's taking even that communion in sin against conscience, and he should flee it. And become Lutheran. Yes. Right. All right, so let's throw this one at you. Does forgiveness of sins get withheld from those who don't believe communion to be truly Christ's flesh and blood? Are, are we assuming that's like in the forgiveness that is received in communion? Or... Okay. Well, let's assume yeah. that. That's a good. That's a good guess. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, it's it's taken for judgment. This well, is right. what Saint Paul says in First Corinthians eleven. I was going to say it goes right back to that that First Corinthians text again. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, Paul is quite clear about that. But what's not withheld is the body and blood of Christ. It is the body and blood of Christ by virtue of Christ's word. Just like the absolution is Christ's word as well. So there is forgiveness of sins, say, like in the divine service, in the liturgy. Right. Let's, let's talk about Pharaoh as an example. The word of God comes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh rejects that word. If Pharaoh had trusted that word and followed that word, right, he would have had all of the benefits of that word. But instead, it becomes to him a greater curse than before he even had it. And this is what happens in the, in the sacrament of the altar. To, to, to approach it in sin, denying that it is what it is, is to actually incur judgment over the sin of denying what God says. Who knows where that goes? I don't want to find out. Nor do I. Here's another. Does allowing the word of God take Captive human reason mean one has to embrace contradictions? An example here is I both exist and I don't exist in the same time and the same sense. 
That's an explicit example. Implicitly, I don't exist, yet I am speaking as speaking implies existence. So again, does allowing the Word of God take captive human reason mean one has to embrace contradictions? From just that, that far, the answer is yes. In the Scriptures, God has two contradictory words, the law and the gospel. You are under judgment. You are going to hell because you're just a dirty, rotten sinner. You deserve nothing but it. God, in his grace and mercy, loves you and sent his only begotten son into the flesh, called you by the gospel, and has made you a Christian. You are saved. Two contradictory words that apply to you pretty much simultaneously. So yes, but but this existing, not existing, I don't understand what the... Is he getting at this, that, you know, a statement like, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, and yet I can pinch myself and feel pain, so I know I'm alive? I guess. But that, in and of itself, is a contradiction, is it not? You're dead in your sins and trespasses, but I don't look dead. You're not dead. But is it a contradiction? Because that, that, one, that one would be resolved easily, is, would it not, by, by just saying, yeah, Paul's talking about spiritual death. And I'm thinking about, you know, Lucky who fell out the window. Right? Eutychus. Eutychus, Eutychus yeah. yeah. So he falls out the window, and, I mean, Scripture talks about death in different ways, doesn't it? It talks about spiritual death. It talks about physical death. It talks about eternal death, temporal death, all these sorts of things. Um, I mean, that's very—that's that's maybe finding contradictions where they don't exist. All right, here's another one. Do Lutherans believe that all other faith traditions are heterodox? So let's go around the horn with that. I'm going to say yes. Pastor Bruss, what would you say? Yes. Oh, Pastor Michael. Yes. Okay, I guess we, I guess that answers that. All right, so following up with that, do they believe the other denominations are not saved? Do Lutherans believe that other denominations are not saved? Uh, around the horn is that is that what you're suggesting? Sure. Okay. The answer is no. 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 Okay. Great. This because, is easy. Because what say? Uh, let's just talk about that. Sure. What orthodoxy is a great blessing, and and it's available. It's just following the words of the scriptures. But one is saved not by one's orthodoxy. One is saved by Jesus alone. That's a wonderful blessing, isn't it? Right. And that's I mean those those divisions are are only divisions that are that are temporal. They're not eternal divisions. Pastor Kern said it really well. <laughs> the, the other day, uh, Monday, we had that visitor that was introduced to us. She said, I'm not a Lutheran. And what did you say? You will be after you die. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody will be. Yeah. But until then, okay, so this does circle back a little bit to what we've already discussed. God saves your will. And part of that will wants everything in your mind. It wants, it wants to be orthodox. I think we tend to lean towards heterodoxy and maybe even heresy. And that stuff has got to be rooted out of us. I always use the example of orthodontics. I mean, I wore braces as a teenager, and it took many years to straighten out crooked teeth. And so it takes time. Not that God can't do it, but for the most part, he's probably not going to do it overnight. It takes time. It requires means. It requires study. A lot of times it requires repentance. And so 
our desire for all of us, not just the ones asking the questions, but even us giving the answers, our desire is to be orthodox. Now, the great news is those who are in heterodox bodies, as you just both got through saying, of course they're saved because what do they have there? They don't have the sacraments, but what do they have? Jesus. Jesus. Well, I was going to say the Word of God. Okay, good. Yeah, and therefore they have Jesus. Right. Yep. And that is what saves. Some of the New Testament exhortations are really wonderful. Second uh, Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. As Paul sang, mix your good doctrine with heterodoxy? No. Uh, how about Romans sixteen seventeen? I appeal to you, brethren, to mark those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So we are called as Christians to the purity of God's word. Heterodoxy and false doctrine, it's always trying to get in. It's, it's seeping into our pores, you know, even on something like a K-Love or some sort of Christian music. Like, it can just seep in, and we don't even realize that it's gotten in. It's like always wondering, how in the world do all these bugs get in my screened-in porch? And so what you do is you, you want to eliminate those things. Get, get them out of there. This is the wonderful news, really, that God, even in the midst of heterodoxy, he still saves. And I'm going to go so far as to say this is a unique claim of the Evangelical Lutheran Church. If you follow Methodism, like true Methodism, the only way you can be saved is by following Wesley's method. It's not by Jesus. It's by following Wesley's method. If you... Uh, are a Roman Catholic. We've already talked about this. Even Roman Catholics aren't saved uh, according to their own teaching. And there is no, you know, what is it? Uh, nulla salus extra ecclesiam. There's no salvation outside of the, the church, meaning the Roman Catholic church. So Lutherans and Reformed and non-denoms are all condemned. And that ignores the central teaching of Scripture, which is that Jesus alone saves. So I thought this was a really interesting question. It's following up with the exact same thing. At what point can agreement between believers be reached? In all points of doctrine. And then it says, as a follow-up to that, or is the only acceptable answer that all should be Lutheran? Well, that would be ideal. Around the, around yeah. the, around the horn? <laughs> okay, go ahead, Mike. You'll start, start us off. Yes. 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 <laughs> Absolutely. And just yeah. as we said, everybody's going to be Lutheran at some point. <laughs> exactly. Right. You yeah. might as well get the gifts while you're living. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but it, it does go back to the Lutheran church is the church that has been cleansed by the gospel. Why would you participate in any other church? Because it's clearly not cleansed by the gospel. I want to talk about that. That was my comment that I forgot, um, that you had talked about the devil, the world, and your own sinful flesh being open or sort of being sources of and, and making you open to false teaching. And one of, the, one of the things that I experience, have experienced numerous times in my ministry, is people recognizing the truth of the Lutheran teaching, but saying, I'm really comfortable at 
this church or that church. This is where all my friends are. Um, that is the, the flesh that, that is a, a fleshly thing. And I, I, no one, no one wants you to lose your friends. I mean, that's, that's not what anyone's saying, but that is a fleshly desire ruling over what God has called you to do, which is seek fellowship with an Orthodox communion. Yeah, it's sad that one was not raised in an Orthodox communion, but now when you're 30, 40, 50, whatever, and you realize you haven't been raised in that, then get to one as quickly as you can. Well, and you can can still have those friends. I mean, it's really still okay. It's just go to the Orthodox church. But what if it's your wife? Well, you can still have that wife. <laughs> you can, but that that does that does admittedly complicate it. Sure, in for significant sure. And that's, ways, that's really the issue: know. is that and it does complicate things. Saint Augustine is a good example that his mother Monica was married to a an unbeliever, but that didn't stop her from going to the Catholic Church and raising Augustine in the church. All right, this one is completely different. Eh, maybe it is, maybe it's not, but I like it. Where in Scripture is the divine service outlined? The divine service has no scriptural outline. It is an adiaphoron. It is a thing uh, developed by the church in its wisdom for the church's good order, in order best to reflect the teachings of Scripture for use by Christians on a regular basis. And so what do Christians need above all? They need the forgiveness of sins. This is how, this is the word of Christ that brings us to the faith and keeps us in the faith. And so the divine service is just shot through with it. It's wonderful. And if there was an order, even though we would love to see more, you think about the early church and how when they gathered together. And again, they didn't gather on Sundays at eight o'clock. You know, they gathered every day of the week. And you see what they're doing there. They're Submitting themselves to the apostles' teaching. You're thinking Acts 2.42. Yeah. Yep. There's the uh, the fellowship. There's the breaking of the bread. Hint, hint, Eucharist. And there is, as you've pointed out before, not just prayers being made like, oh, Pastor Micah, what would you like to pray for? It is the prayers. Which is the technical term in the synagogue for the liturgy. Yeah, so there, you're, you're, you're spot on. There's no question that, that the church has always been liturgical. Right, and in the, the whole spectrum of Scripture, you pick up on little things that all could uh, be in the divine service. For instance, you know, uh, uh, the pastors, they wear a, a white robe, right? Just like those who are you know, seen in the book of Revelation. Uh, there, there is the lifting up of holy hands, you know, that uh, the pastor, when he is making the prayers, he he lifts his hands, just as scriptures say. Um, but, but you also have things like uh, greet each other with a holy kiss. Well, we don't, you know, we don't do that. You know, I, I actually know a church that gives that option. It's either the, 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 the handshake or the, or the kiss. Wow! I always opted for the handshake. <laughs> you did. I would opt for the kiss. I'd like that kiss. Now, granted, this is not a kiss on the lips, right? I mean, you think... If, you know, left and right, just just like you always see, a, you know, Middle Eastern man go and greet someone. So, but it doesn't matter. We still don't even we still don't even practice that. I don't know. I'm I'm picking up on how all of these questions, right? They come from a very complex, 
diagrammed, you know, again here, where's the outline for the divine service? Things can't just be simple. I, I see. You're saying that there's got to be a huge schema here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's exactly right. Yep. Um, but we could maybe talk about why Lutherans haven't rejected the divine service too. And again, it's for good order. Uh, if, if it faithfully brings across the gospel, there is no reason to throw it out. And so as not to disturb peace in the church, we have kept it for 500 years. Right. Well, and, and, and Pastor Kearns, what you were saying about, uh, you know, certain certain elements in the service, the white robe and the lifting up of the hands and all that. I mean, when you look at the words that are actually spoken during the service as well, I mean, they're, you know, so many of them are directly out of Scripture. It's not prescribed in, you know, in a book of the Bible saying this is how you do it, but it all comes from Scripture. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I, I love that. Uh, you, you think about we in our evangelical church, we were very word heavy. And I just find it absolutely fascinating in the divine service. It's all scripture. I thought we were word heavy. My goodness, the divine liturgy is, it's all word. And this, as you said, Michael, it really does teach us what worship is like. See, the evangelical thinks that worship is, uh, and there's a, there's a great deal of, of, of Christians who who realize what I'm getting ready to say is true. It's not just the Lutherans or, or myself. It's so uh, vapid in the sense that it's just these silly songs that people are standing and swaying to and looking for God within to you know give them this boost and all this kind of garbage. Anyway, what worship truly is is God moving first and us responding. Mm-hmm. And thanksgiving and praise and prayer... God moves first, we respond. And the divine liturgy, from the moment it begins, is nothing but God doing this, us doing this. God doing this, us doing this. It's always about He moves first, we respond. And that is worship. Good. And, and that response actually inculcates faith. It teaches the habits of faith. It's, it's, it says, when God speaks, we listen and we, we react in faith. So when the pastor says in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit at the start of the divine service, 85% of the people bless themselves with a sign of the Holy Cross. But all of the people say, Amen. They all say, That's Amen. true. That, that is true. Yep. Yep. How does one, or can one lose the sealing, the unction one receives in baptism and communion? All right, so let's go to this one. Is Lutheran confession of the Lord's Supper mean we lack something until the next participation? No, it means that we are in the wash machine, the law and gospel wash machine. And and so the reason we return frequently to the sacrament of the altar is to get the the forgiveness for the sins that we have committed that bother us, you know, I tell you what, oftentimes I go to the rail and the the sins that bother me <laughs> happened 30 years ago. And I mean, the, the forgiveness is still there throughout the week, uh, you know, between the Sundays. But the desire would be that the Christian would be running back to the rail, knowing the, the amazing gifts they receive while they're there. And, and sensing oneself to be a sinner. Yeah. It, just because you sense yourself to be a sinner doesn't mean that you don't know that you're forgiven. 
But sensing oneself to be a sinner drives one to seek the forgiveness of sins where God says it's going to be. I recall someone asking you one time, Pastor Bross, she said something to the extent of, um, after I receive absolution, how long does it last? And your answer to her was, do you recall by any chance? No, I don't. You said, until the next time you receive it. Yeah. I I mean, in that she receives absolution and she turns around and she gets in her car and she's thinking what she's saying, what she says or thinking what she thinks. Yes. I I mean, I, I would stand by that answer, I think, still. But I also wouldn't recommend that somebody say, oh, great, I'll, sure. come to, I'll, I'll be back at, to church in 30 years. Sure. Because something happens in that 30 years. A, a dependence upon the word of absolution is broken. Or you say, I don't need it. And then faith is dead. That's another reason why to come to the sacrament of the altar frequently. What keeps one in the faith is not the holy life. What keeps one in the faith is the message of the gospel, and it's delivered through the sacrament of the altar, and that's why you go. Right. So we've got just a couple more here. How do we recognize the wrongs that we have done without the Holy Spirit? We don't. Yeah, I don't think you you can. And this, we would say, is the Holy Spirit using the law. Correct. Right, yeah. I mean, he's not going to give us the gospel here when we're in the wrong. It's the law. Right. And and the question here, I wonder if, if he's that he's after is if you only get the Holy Spirit once you've come to faith, then what's convicting you of your sin prior to that? And no one says that you're only getting the Holy Spirit once you come to faith. We are saying that the Holy Spirit is poured out in a saving way when you're brought to faith, but is at work otherwise in your life and even through God's word sometimes even through the police department this is an operation of God's law it is so clear with the israelites wandering to the promised land i mean this is us we're wandering through the promised land and god provides us this miraculous food to nourish us he gives us everything that we need to support this body and life For the Israelites, their shoes didn't even wear out. He gives us this water from the rock that the New Testament calls Christ. It's our baptism. This food falling from heaven, this is on the altar given for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins as we make our way as pilgrims through places where people don't want us to pass, making our way to the promised land. To follow your analogy... The Reformed are grumbling Israelites because they don't like the manna from heaven. Correct. Okay. And uh, the the water tastes bitter. Right. Because. And why did we ever leave Egypt? Yep. And grumbling against not just Moses, but God himself. Not a lot to argue with there, Pastor (laughs) Christ. All right. All right. All right. All right. I've got another one here. Why does the pastor need to do the absolution? I mean, I think that that we've we've said that a few times about the the order in the service. I mean, God desires order in His church. There's there are there are men who have been called into that position as pastors who are, I mean, that falls under their part of their responsibilities as the the under shepherd in that flock. So, you know, it's the it's the pastor's job to do that. So he should do it and do it faithfully. Good, I like that. And if his question is driving at this, can a layman? forgive sins? The answer is 
Yes. Yes. yes, absolutely. I do believe that's what he's getting at because he asks, and if someone has not heard a Lutheran pastor absolve them, are we saying a person's sins are not forgiven? No. No. no absolutely not. I mean, this is what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Mm-hmm. Forgive us our trespasses. But it does go back to assurance again. Mm-hmm. I can pray, Lord, forgive me of my sins. And if, if I believe that, then then so be it. But man, oh man, when I say I am a poor, miserable sinner, and somebody else says, in the stead and by the command of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I forgive you. Meaning that if Jesus Christ were standing here right now, which he is, this is what he would say. I forgive you of all of your sins. Man, I heard it. This was not something I I felt in my heart. This is not something I had to think about. I heard it. Faith comes by hearing. I've got assurance. I know for a fact. And this is the thing about the divine service. I could walk out of the divine service at that point right there. My sins are forgiven. Why do I need to stay any longer? We've been here two minutes. My sins are already forgiven. Honey, I'll see you in the car. But the great thing is, God wants to give you more gifts. So stay. That's fantastic. And there, there is a certitude thing here. God, so that we might not doubt, he establishes an office that is set up to forgive and retain sins. The retention part is very important um, because the forgiveness is nothing without the retention. If I just walk around printing money like the U.S. government, <laughs> it, it becomes worthless. Worthless, exactly. Uh, but but if, if the person sitting in front of me knows that sins can and need to be both forgiven and retained and hears these words, the, these sins are forgiven. That's a big deal, I well, think. And this is visually displayed in the clothing that we wear, not just on Sunday, but daily. I mean, we wear black shirts saying what? I am a sinner. But we wear these white bands around our what? Our heart to prove that we really, really love God? Are they on our knees to show that we're great men of prayer? No, they're on our on our throat, which is where we proclaim what? The absolution. Which is Christ's. Yep. The whiteness of Christ. Yep. Well, that is all the questions that I have, gentlemen. Wow. Uh, were, you, were you looking for more? That's it? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was great. And I, I, I really hope that other people bring other questions. I... And maybe this has prompted this listener to think of other things, and we welcome those things and, and really don't regard anything as we're, we're confident in God's Word. And you've heard us today give really scriptural answers and then stop talking where Scripture doesn't talk. We're fine with that. Yeah, and, but so many are not. Boy, they just keep on blovating keep on, keep on, keep on. And they don't do, as you just said, let the scripture speak for itself and stop right there and rest there and find comfort there. Mm-hmm. Well, here's what we'll do. Anybody wants to send in any more questions to us, please do so. You can find our email link at our church website. That is... You can find us on our website at stjohnlcms.com. T-O-P-E-K-A dot org. That's 
stjohnlcmstopeka.org, or just Google us, St. John's Lutheran Church in Topeka. There you go. And what we'll do is uh, I'll just collect them. How's that, guys? We'll just collect the questions, and uh, that way if we... Uh, have some good ones, and uh, we'll we'll do a whole podcast uh, designated just for this. That's awesome. And could we just add one thing? We want Lutherans to send in their questions too. Uh, even better. Yeah. You know that brings up a question that I got yesterday, and Pastor Bruss, you saw this, or maybe it was two days ago. Here was a Lutheran source that was talking about water and spirit, where Jesus talks to Nicodemus. And get this, Michael, this Lutheran source, this Lutheran pastor says water, as Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, refers to ambiotic fluid. Oh. Not baptism. Oh, my gosh. That's kind of a big miss there. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about it. And what I loved was this Lutheran guy emailed us and said, I've never heard that. Right. That was great. Oh, wow. I'm like, it's because you, you're well catechized and your ear picked up on heterodoxy. Right. And now he's unsubscribing from that one and joining Memorial Moments. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gentlemen, until next time. You've been listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kearns. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or St. John LCMS. Am I pushing that on the wall? Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. You're fine. It's Jesus. He's He's sorry. Uh, (laughs) Did I say that? I can't say. I can't say it the way you say it. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Say uh, say V A U G E. Bag. Really? (laughs) What do you say? Do you want to? Do you want to get a bagel too? Yeah. Yeah. Like some bag. (laughs) Bag. How do you, you say, say vague? I say vague. You say you say you vague. Vague. And vague. It, it sounds unfortunate. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can't hear the difference, honestly. Oh, All right, here we go.